0: Welcome to the Ridge Life Podcast. We at Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship trust this message will be an encouragement to you. Please join with us as we look into God's Word with Pastor Mike Bird. For the uh, month of April, I decided I thought it would be uh, good and helpful for us to take a little break from uh, the Book of Ephesians. And don't worry, don't worry. We'll we'll finish it up. Finish it up. Okay. It's all right. I know some of you were kind of like, oh, is he going to finish it? No, we'll finish it. It'll be okay. You're all right. Um, but I thought it would be good and helpful for us, just for the month of April, uh, to really refocus our attention on the gospel. And uh, so I really wanted to revisit some of these truths in the gospel as uh, we see them. Uh, in God's Word, how it's given to us, and just, uh, I think it's important to revisit these truths primarily because, especially during this time, there's a lot of talk about uh, about bunnies, about eggs, about, um, you know, all kinds of different things. And I thought it would be good and helpful for us to just kind of revisit these truths so that uh, we might know a little bit more about what God says in his word as regards uh, to the gospel message. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, churchgoers that sit in churches all over the world, uh, even in this country, that really not know anything of what the gospel really is, what the gospel message is. Uh, There's a lot of pastors that uh, preach a different form of a gospel, Uh, Maybe they are leaving out large chunks of uh, the gospel message or they're making the gospel uh, palatable so it's a lot easier for unbelievers to believe it um, as we're to not try to bring any type of offense uh, to people. And so I thought it would be good for us uh, to revisit the gospel. Uh, We're reminded of uh, what the gospel uh, tells us. Uh, as it's revealed in Scripture, how Paul declared what the gospel is. And he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Uh, He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So for this month, we're going to look at, uh, I believe, four important truths as they relate to the gospel and today we're going to focus on and begin with the holiness of God. And uh, this is what I hope that you would take away from, uh, with you to this morning. God's holiness is necessary for the gospel. God's holiness is necessary for the gospel. So let's take a look at a few of the things is what uh, Scripture tells us about uh, the holiness of God. Back in uh, Albuquerque, uh, after I graduated from high school, uh, in the fall I enrolled in a uh, trade school and I was taking classes for culinary arts. Yes, I can cook, <laughs> um, but I let my wife do most of the cooking. But as I was in that class, um, I remember a specific day we had, uh, we had what they called um, these labs on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and we would start our cooking labs at 7 o'clock in the morning, and that was doing a lot of the prep work and stuff and then getting everything cooked and so forth and so on, and as we went through uh, doing the lab, uh, it was probably around 8, 9 o'clock, uh, I noticed people around me started leaving the building. People were going out. It seemed like it just class had just stopped. Finally, somebody turned on the radio. TVs were rolled out uh, into the hallway. And uh, everyone just kind of stopped what they were doing. And then all of a sudden, everybody's eyes and attention were turned to the news and what had happened. And uh, there were events that were unfolding right before our eyes. Our eyes were glued to the television set of what was going on. And that day was September 11th, 2001. Most of you remember that day as well. And for days, weeks, and months to follow, there was a solemn pause that just seemed to come over all of our nation as we had learned that those, uh, those planes had been hijacked by terrorists and had been flown into the uh, uh, Twin Towers there in New York City and they had collapsed and people had died. And it was a very solemn time of reflection. there was an intense desire to know what was happening and what uh, had taken place. When we come to this meaning of the holiness of God, and, and specifically that God is holy, there should be an arresting of our attention. There should be a solemn pause of what that actually means, that God is holy. And as we look in the scriptures, as it is revealed about God that he is holy, there was such an event as well that took place, as we read in the book of Isaiah, a national event that took place that everybody just seemed to arrest their attention. And one man specifically, Isaiah, who had a vision of God, I believe the very heavens were opened and he got to peer through and see God's throne. And this forever changed his life as he was called then as a prophet to go into the nation of Israel and preach and command them and tell them about uh, their sin and command them to repent. And so we read about this this event that takes place in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is a national event that took place, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high high. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my people have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When we read this in this passage about Isaiah beholding the throne room of God... Sometimes we can look at that, we can just say, okay, I see what Isaiah saw, and I see that the uh, seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy. We just sang a song, holy, holy, holy. But what does it mean that God is holy? If we're going to understand anything about the holiness of God, we have to begin with that foundational truth that God is holy. And that's where we begin with the gospel, that God is Holy. I want you to take note a few of the things here in this passage. He tells us that the, uh, he says about this robe. He says, the train of his robe filled the temple. God's robe filled the entire temple. At the uh, coronation of uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, back in the early 50s, when she came forward to be coronated and be crowned as queen, uh, she had a robe that was carried by her uh, maid servants. And this robe was 18 feet long, thick and embroidered, and it was supposed to be uh, following her, giving all of her pomp and all of her circumstance. This is the queen. This is her honor, and we're, we're carrying it behind her. God's word says that his robe, God's robe, fills the temple. And then notice what he says here. He talks about these seraphim. He says, above him stood the seraphim. These are created angelic beings. And he says, each had six wings. Well, that sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? An angel with six wings? But these wings, the, the way that God created these angelic beings was for a purpose. What is that purpose? Look what he says. He says each had six wings with two of the wings of this, of this angelic creature, the seraphim. It says he covered his face. Think about that. God is so holy that he has created these angelic beings to uh, serve him in the very throne room of God. And these angelic beings that surround God have six wings, and God is so holy that with two of these wings of this uh, seraphim, they cover their face because they cannot even behold the holiness of God. And then he says, with these other two wings, they cover their feet. Why do they cover their feet? I don't know. But there's something about God's holiness that the angels in the throne room of God cover their feet before God. And then with the other two wings, they're able to fly. We read about Moses when he was uh, traveling there through uh, in the land uh, there in the book of Exodus. And he comes and he beholds that burning bush. And the bush speaks. He says, "I am God. I am I am that I am." And he tells Moses, he says, "Take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground." There is something unique about the holiness of God that we as human beings can't even really comprehend what it really means and that the angels have to cover their face in the very presence of God. We read again about Moses, remember, as he's up on the mount, there on Mount Sinai, and he, God has been revealing all of these things to him. And finally, Moses asks him, says, I want to see your glory. And God says, no man can look upon me and live. He says, but I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. I will hide you in a rock, and I will cover you. And he says, when I pass by, I will remove that and I will let you see my back parts of me. And that's exactly what happened. And Moses saw the back parts of God. Now, how far God was from Moses when he saw him? Was he three feet? Was he a mile? Was he a hundred feet? I don't know. But however far he was, it was so bright, it was so glorious that it changed Moses' face where his face was shining and he had to put a veil over his face just so he could speak to the children of Israel. There is something unique about the holiness of God that when we come to what God's word says, we need to arrest our attention that God is holy. Now, as interesting as this makeup of these angels really is, six wings covering their face, covering their feet, flying, what's more unique is their message. Because look what they say. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. Holy, holy, holy. This is is them as they are serving in the very presence of God. Holy, holy, holy. Nowhere else in Scripture do we ever find a different message about God's attributes, such as his love or his mercy, saying mercy, 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 or love, love, love. But when we talk about the holiness of God, it is holy, holy, holy. That's amazing. And this message is very important. And notice as they speak and as they say, holy, 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 look what happens in this picture here. It says, and the foundations of the thresholds shook. Can you imagine? In the very presence of God, how holy God is. And as these angels are speaking, holy, 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 the very foundations are moving. Just at that. And yet we approach God in such a way as if He is not holy. We create a God in our own minds that we are comfortable with, and God says, I am far above that. I am holy, holy, holy. God's word speaks and reveals Himself, but we must listen and see. What he says, God's word says that he is holy. Psalm 71, 22. Psalm 78, verse 41, Psalm 89, verse 18, Isaiah one, verse number four, Isaiah five, verse 19, Isaiah five, verse 24. The psalmist writes in Psalm 99 that God is above all things. Listen to what he says. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Holy. God says of Himself in Leviticus eleven forty four and 45, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's also repeated for us again in Leviticus 19 2, Leviticus 20, verse 26, and 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse number 16. Is there any wonder that God is trying to communicate to us that He is holy? Scriptures teach us that God is morally perfect. He cannot look upon sin, according to Habakkuk 1, verse 13. He cannot lie, according to Titus chapter 1, verse number 2. Only the pure can come before him in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. He is righteous in all his ways and holy in all of his works in Psalm 145, verse 17. But what exactly is Holiness. And specifically, that God is holy. The word holy means to be set apart for a particular purpose. Let me give you a biblical definition when we apply it to God. As, we, as the scriptures reveal to us about the various things about when God says he is holy, how it reveals to us. God is separate from sin. And God is devoted to seeking his own glory. As we look at all the scriptures that talk about God's holiness, we can form this definition as what it means that God is separate from sin and that he is devoted to seeking his own glory. Let's look at these two things. Number one, God is separate from sin. Throughout all the Old Testament, we see this reoccurring theme that runs throughout the thread of the Bible. And that theme is that God is holy and is separate from sin. He separates himself from all that is evil, and he even the things that would defile him. There's several examples of this throughout all the Old Testament. For example, uh, how God separates himself from sin in the book of Leviticus, it's, it's devoted to holiness. We see how God teaches his people to be holy. What does he do? He establishes the tabernacle. He establishes, okay, here's the holy place. Here's the most holy place. He says only certain people can come into the holy place. Only certain people can come into the most holy place. He has this division of the people with the priest and then the high priest. There's a division and he's separating himself from sin. And he tells them that they need to be holy because, why? Because he Is holy. Uh, That entire Mosaic system of the washings, all the, the things that they had to do, that was to portray and say, I am the Lord your God, I am holy, and I am separate from sin. We read of the strict punishment upon anyone who approached Mount Sinai when the Lord came down and spoke with Moses. God said in Exodus 19, verse number 12, he says, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And later in Exodus 20:18, he says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. We read of the doom that was brought upon Korah and Dathan and Abram in Numbers chapter 16 verses 1 through 33 when they were rebelling against the Lord, they were going against Moses. And you know what God did? Behind the, the, very, found, the very earth that was behind them opened up and swallowed them whole and came back together. God says, I am holy He says, I am serious about this and I mean business about it. We read about the destruction of Nadab and Abihu who were priests in Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. It says, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command." So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored, and Aaron remained silent. All of these instances that we read about in the Old Testament were to teach emphasize and burn into the minds and hearts of the Israelites the fundamental truth that God is holy, unapproachably holy. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this about God's holiness. He says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure, and then raising the concept to the highest degree that we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, Infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. God even separates himself from the sinner. Isaiah 1 through two says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden the face from you so that he does not hear. Jesus himself even spoke about this separation when he declared in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. Sorry, there are no trapdoors. There is a division. God says, I am holy, and that's it. Secondly, God is devoted to seeking his own glory. And we'll see more of this, how it plays out in my next two points here. But when we say that God is devoted to seeking his own glory... We mean that God is so perfect, so pure, that He has absolute integrity of His nature and character. And everything that God does is for His own glory. Everything that God does is for His own glory. And it's sinful for man to seek His own glory. Why? Because we are made in the image of God, we are a creation of God. God is the only one who should receive glory in everything because he is completely holy. First John 1:5 says, "This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all." So you say, Mike, what does this have to do with the gospel? Everything because we begin with God, that God is holy. And that leads us here into our second point. So, not only is God holy, but God's holiness demands righteousness and justice. When we say that God is righteous or that God is just, these are two qualities of God that are really just a manifestation of His holiness. Because He is holy, He is just. Because He is holy, He is righteous. In other words, he is righteous in all of his deeds, everything that he does. And how he deals with man's sin. Two things about this. Look what Psalm 11, 4 through 7 says. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne in his heaven, his I see his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals of the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So when we think about the holiness of God, of his righteousness, And his justice, God is holy and his holiness demands righteousness. When we say that we are saying that God has every right to impose righteous laws and demands. He can do that. Because he is holy. He can do that because he is God and we are not God. God says, this is the standard, and he can make that standard because he is holy, and we are not. And so everything that God does is a reflection of his holiness, even saying, I demand righteousness. Because you would expect nothing less from a holy God. A holy and perfect God who does not demand a righteous standard to which he judges everything would be no God at all. It'd be like if you went into a courtroom and you had been wronged and there was a trial and the person had been proven wrong. He was guilty. And that judge who was supposed to be a representation of justice and righteousness And he says, I've heard all the testimony. I've heard everything there is to say about this. And yes, this man is guilty, but he gets to go free. You would be appalled at that kind of justice. You would demand that that person receives justice. That that person deserves what he had done. Why would we expect anything less from God? God says, I am holy, and I have a righteous and holy standard to which I'm going to hold people accountable. And he says, I demand righteousness. Because he is holy, he has every right to demand this. God does it for his own glory. Here's the problem with man. We don't have any righteousness of our own. In all of man's achievements, medically, technologically, All of our advancements in society and knowledge, we still have a huge problem. And we are unrighteous. God says all of our righteousness acts are as filthy rags in Isaiah 64 6. And if you really want to see what God thinks about your righteousness, I encourage you to study out uh, what those filthy rags are. It's not pretty. God says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. God has given us a law, things that he demands from us, because he is holy. Secondly, his holiness demands justice. Because God is holy, he is just in all of the things that he does. Even as he judges sin and sinners. This is God's penalty that is attached to his righteous laws. Look at this scripture. Psalm 5, verses 5 through 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Boy, that's pretty strong language, is it not? Now, if your feathers are kind of, what, what? That's good. Because, again, we have to look at Scripture as what God says about himself. Not what we think God should be like, but what God says that he is like. God hates sin and hates those who do evil. Because of man's wickedness, God is perfectly just in his hatred towards sin and those who commit sinful acts. Why? Why? Because he is holy. We are not. He is God. We are not. Psalm 106 verse 40 says, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. What do we do with all that? I mean, how does this, how does this fit in with the New Testament where it tells us in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. How do we we comprehend these two things? I mean, here we read in Psalms, God hates. And then over in the New Testament, we read about that God is love. Are we talking about two separate gods? No, we're talking about the same God, David talked about the love of God just as well as John did in Psalm 36, verse 5. He says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. John was not ignorant of the wrath of God, even though he wrote John 3, 16, even though he wrote in 1 John, he was not ignorant of the wrath of God because he wrote in Revelation 14:11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night How about Revelation 20, verse 15? If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God is perfectly just in demanding justice for the laws that are broken and for sinners who practice sin and who are born in sin. Why? Because he is holy and we are not. He is God and we are not. You might be thinking, Mike, that's not fair. That's not fair. We struggle with this because we really don't understand what holiness really is. Because we ourselves are not God. And there's a great problem in all of this. In fact, this is what all the Bible is written about. And listen, oh, so carefully. Because I believe this this is what makes the gospel so unique, so precious, so scandalous. If God is holy and his holiness demands justice, he cannot simply forgive. He can't just sweep it under the rug and and say, well, I forgive you because we have broken his righteous, holy commands. And he can't just say, well, I'll just turn a blind eye to all of it. He demands righteousness and justice. He cannot simply pardon or he would be corrupt. He would not be just or holy. People might say, well, what if I keep his commandments, obey the golden rule, get baptized, do communion, go to church, be a good person, be a good neighbor? Paul answers that question for us in Romans 3, 19 for 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law was not for man to be saved through it. The law says that man should be condemned that he should die and that he should perish. The law reveals to us that we are sinners and it teaches us that we are hopelessly lost without God. God's holiness demands justice. We have offended a very holy, righteous, and just God who wants justice. So how can a righteous and holy God justify and forgive and pardon people who have offended him? And deserve to be cast into hell for all of eternity? Well, he can't just simply forgive. If the matter stopped here, we would all be hopeless. And this leads me to my third point: God's holiness manifests His grace and redemption. This is what makes the gospel so beautiful. If your idea of the gospel is I got my ticket punched and I'm on my way to heaven, you really don't have an understanding of what the gospel really is. The gospel speaks to us and tells us we are lost without God. We deserve his righteous wrath for all of eternity. But his holiness says so much more. It talks about his redemption and his grace Towards sinners. When we encounter the holy God, not only does his holiness demand that righteousness and justice, but we see this other side of his holiness, and that is is his grace and redemption. Sin must be punished. God must be satisfied. So how does God, who is perfect in his holiness, show his grace and redemption to the sinner without compromising his character? It's through the gospel. Follow along here and mark with me at Romans three twenty-one through 26, a few things, because this is awesome as we see how it's unfolded for us. I mean, if we're left in the state that we are, God is holy, God is righteous, I deserve his wrath, and that was it, there would be no hope. That's why the gospel, good news, this is good news. You will have good news that is being given to you. Romans three twenty-one through 26, mark a few of these things. I love the opening words of this passage. But now, wow, but now, you don't have to remain in that sinful, unholy state. God has offered redemption to us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We who are so unrighteous can escape our creator's wrath via the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord has not left us to despair. He's not left us in a, in, a, in a place where we're without him. He's acted to save his people, providing us with a righteousness that comes by simply believing in Jesus Christ. As John wrote, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Notice verse 21 here in this text. But now the righteousness of God has been, notice, manifested apart from the law. So God's righteousness was originally manifested in the law. You are a sinner. You are condemned. God demands justice. But here in Romans 3.21, we read that his righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. What does that mean to say that God's righteousness was manifested apart from the law? It means that you had to pay for your sins. You were in debt to your sin. Your payment means you have to die. You've transgressed. You have to be cast in the lake of fire but he says you, his righteousness is now manifested apart from the law. And how does he do that? Look what he says here in verse 22. How is God's righteousness manifested? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Since all have sinned, is what he says here in verse 23. Since all of us have sinned and we've come short of the glory of God, how can we obtain God's grace? How can we obtain this righteousness, God's righteousness? What he says, verse 24 and 25, you are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So you're justified freely through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. God has manifested his righteousness. And his redemption, this grace, he's manifested in Jesus Christ. God says, These people are lost, they're hopeless. I demand justice. I can't simply forgive them. So, what does he do? He provides a gift, his son Jesus. And God himself takes on flesh. He lives among us a perfect life. He was holy. He goes to the cross. And there on the cross, he endures the punishment of our sin upon himself. And he dies. He dies for our sin. And because he dies, they bury him. But he doesn't stay dead. He comes back. And all those who believe in Jesus, all those who repent of their sin, turn to Christ in faith, the Bible says that they are then justified, not because of anything you have done, but because of what Jesus did. He took our punishment. It's through his blood. Look what verse 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word propitiation is a wonderful word, it means to covering a covering of his blood has been applied to all those who believe. You might have been a churchgoer all your life. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you've done all the churchy type, religious, Christianese type things all your life. But you've never repented of your sin and trusted Jesus as your Savior. If God is drawing you do not harden your heart. Believe. Believe. God will accept you just as you are a sinner because Jesus took your punishment and your wrath. And so when we talk about the holiness of God, it's important. It's important to begin with God because it really reveals to us how holy he is and what he's done for us. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church, or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at LifeAtTheRidge.Church.